is that theme? Where is that melody from? I know that music. Uh, I know some of you are thinking that it is a club remix of the Forrest Gump soundtrack by Ektronic. Highly recommend you check that out on SoundCloud. I'm Adam Levenberg. Welcome to the official screenwriting podcast. This is the first episode that I have personally edited in order to bring you a much more streamlined podcast. There are 50% less tangents in this podcast than before. Uh, May still have some technical difficulties, but it definitely is greatly streamlined because often I'll mention a movie and then I feel the need to give some background on the movie, talk about the director, and that leads to talking about the director's other movie and so forth. And I think that a lot of that stuff is very easily cut. So this is going to be a much more linear podcast from now on. In this episode, I'll be sharing some Oscar observations and some pop culture observations related to that. I have some great listener questions on finding a co-writer and interning. I'll talk a little bit about an article that was written about me. Uh, I have a section in here on creating conflict. I had to cut it away from some other stuff I was talking about, but I felt like there were some relevant scene recommendations uh, and information, education you can get. So I decided to leave that in and that will be floating out there on its own a little bit. And also I want to remind you that nonstop is in theaters. I will be talking about this movie. If you're a devoted listener of the podcast, get out there, go see it because I will be talking about the script. It's written by my friend, Ryan Engel. It was was a really cool experience to be able to go and buy a ticket for a friend's movie in theaters. Now, of course, I've known tons and tons of writers who've had movies made and, you know, but it's a very different thing to have a close friend of yours on such a huge uh, movie and one that turned out to be really good. I enjoyed it a lot. And there's a lot of good stuff uh, that I think screenwriters should be able to appreciate in there. It is a great mystery piece. There are a lot of inventive ideas in terms of how they visually represent clues. There's also a massive ensemble. I'm very interested to look at and talk about how the writer kept all of these different characters unique on the page and how in what ways he made them distinctive so that you could just follow it because there's like 20 characters running around it's really insane you'll see what i mean and if you've seen the movie you know what i mean and the interesting thing is that the film does not get into their motives it's not like we find out oh that flight attendant her mom needs surgery and she needs money for that maybe that's why she's the terrorist um you, you don't get stuff like that it's just visual clues that are dropped in that you know make you say huh i wonder if they're up to something. Um, Sometimes it's the absence of a character that makes you say, huh, where'd that character go? So, you know, the director really knew what he was doing, and I'm very interested to track back and see how much of that was in the screenplay. I have a huge piece of advice for everybody because I just happened upon this idea this week, and that is that often when you hear about a movie, and, and you hear, oh, it has a really cool ending or it, you know, there's something about this movie that you might be interested in. Um, what I do is I add it to my Netflix and I end up with a cute Netflix queue that's 180 movies long. And then I go in and I take the movie out because I can't even remember why the hell I put it in there in the first place. 
And often, you know, Quentin Tarantino shows some of his favorite movies. He has a movie theater here in L.A., the New Beverly, which he had taken over. It was a revival house or a place where they showed old movies. And he upgraded the place and made it his own and does a lot of the programming. He picks the movies that show there. And they often say things like, oh, see this amazing twist ending or see this movie for this specific thing. And sometimes it's like, I don't want to devote an entire night of my life to go seeing some shitty 1978 Italian movie that I might have very little of interest for me. Um, But what I have figured out is often you can go to wikipedia.org and look at the summaries of movies you haven't seen and read the summaries. I did this for a movie called Dragonfly, which was a 2002, I think, Kevin Costner film uh, directed by Tom Shadiak, who did Ace Ventura. And this movie had a twist ending. And, And I knew that it had a twist ending. And I was always interested. What is the twist ending in this movie? Never saw the film, though, probably will never see the film, but there's a great summary on Wikipedia. And reading this summary, I'm like, huh, that's an interesting concept, and it's an interesting mystery, and it does have a really cool ending. I recommend you go look at it, because when people say, well, what is a treatment? Right there, that summary, that's a treatment. That summary actually lays out an entire movie in maybe five or six paragraphs. It would fit on two pages, maybe three. Um, that is exactly when you're engineering your your treatment before you sit down and write. That's exactly the kind of summary that you would put together or put together for a producer if you were a writer perhaps looking to go out and pitch something. You definitely have to do that amount of work that's there in Wikipedia. And I found I've been doing that also on some other movies where I just I know that I don't have time. I'm never going to get to some of these movies, but I want to see, well, what is it about this movie? What made that particular movie special? Is it giving away the endings to some stuff? Sure. But the reality is I never would have seen these movies and it allows a much faster survey of what's out there so that you don't have to sit through the entire thing because the chances are that you might even sit down and you might get to the point where you watch the movie and then you decide, hey, this is a piece of shit and you never get to the end and you never get to that cool twist. So I highly recommend that if you're looking to do surveys on genre, if you're looking to learn about a lot more movies, it's a lot faster to sit there and in 40 minutes you can probably read 8 to 10 Wikipedia summaries, it would take you 20 hours to watch that many movies, and you probably wouldn't get through them all. So that is a an amazing tool that I highly recommend if you're looking to learn a little bit more about your family of movies. That being said, I'm now going to move into talking about the Oscars. 12 Years a Slave won Best Picture. I know that I said American Hustle would win. But, you know, some of you might be a couple weeks behind, and please remember, I said that, I believe, the first week in December, right after I had seen the film and was blown away by it. Uh, You you know, when it comes to Oscar season, 12 Years a Slave had a a problem, and I've talked about this a little bit. I now have a a term for it, which is it had a 128 hours problem. If you remember, 128 hours was the film that Danny Boyle did as a follow-up to his Best Picture winning Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, It starred James Franco about a guy who got, a true story about a guy who got trapped uh, in between some rocks. Uh, He was a hiker, and he ended up having to hack his own arm off to escape. And people just didn't want to watch the movie. But there 
was really a problem getting a lot of older Oscar voters to watch something that's just so upsetting and harrowing. And 12 Years a Slave fell into that category. Luckily, it overcame it and got the recognition it deserves, I think, because while I have seen, I believe, seven of the nine nominated films, 12 Years a Slave is not one of them. It is sitting here. I have the DVD. I just can't bring myself to watch it. You know, it's just really difficult to motivate to see a film like that. So I will see it. I'm a huge fan of John Ridley. One of the interesting stories that, you know, emerged after the Oscars uh, was the rift between John Ridley and director Steve McQueen. And I don't think that it, this was a big personal issue between the two of them. It's simply that Steve McQueen uh, had written some of his other films. He was a writer on 12 Years a Slave. He had asked for credit. And John Ridley fought to keep his writing credit. And I, I guess Steve McQueen might have blamed him. Uh, but, you know, often these things are dealt with in a way that really, uh, I don't know exactly how they negotiated it. Often these things are left to the WGA, where they decide, they look at all the different versions of the script, and they have criteria to determine, did this final writer, because uh, a lot of directors do their own polish, or they bring on their own writer to make certain changes. It's a very common thing, and there are some very strict criteria as to what a writer has to do in order to get credit. So anyway, there was a little bit of a fallout, and they kept it quiet. I thought that was really cool. They kept it quiet because a lot of times Oscar voters will say, well, I don't know that I really want to vote for that because I don't think that that writer was the final writer. Other writers who delivered all the way to the end, and that is something that I can totally understand. I, I think I'm going to throw out another example. I'm pretty sure that Jason Reitman did a lot of writing on Juno and did not take credit on it or did not get credit on it, and, you know, Diablo Cody got quite a bit of publicity and got an Oscar for it that, you know, he may have deserved to share in. In any case, John Ridley is one of my favorite authors. He's been around a really long time, and he's had other projects, you know, Three Kings uh, that David O. Russell did, who, you know, now did American Hustle. Uh, John Ridley, I believe, wrote the, the book that that was based on, or the screenplay, and they had some credit issues there. But uh, my favorite, one of my favorite books ever is The Drift. I thought that would have made an absolutely amazing movie. I may have told this story before, but screw it, I'll tell it again. Um, my favorite character ever that I've ever seen, because it was just so imaginative, was a character in this book, which is, by the way, a it is set in the world of train-hopping hobos. Uh, but unlike the old hobos that you'd see in, you know, old movies or whatever, the rails, as they're called, the system of trains and people who hop on trains and everything, it's basically a very, very violent uh, drug-running world, and it's it's a culture unto itself, and it's about a a guy who his mentor comes to him and says hey, my, I got a letter from my niece. She says that she's riding the rails. She's a 17-year-old girl. You know that that's incredibly dangerous. I need you to track her down. I'm too old to do this. I'm too old to take on this mission. And because this is the guy who showed him how to survive, he feels a need to, uh, to accept the mission because there's a young girl whose life is quite definitely at risk. Um, and, you know, it, it happens to be his mentor's niece. And there's a murder mystery involved, but there is a character called Socket Mama. And Socket Mama is a, a hobo-servicing prostitute who gives blowjobs for the grand sum of $5. 
and for an extra $4, she removes her glass eye. And when I met John Ridley, I, I was like, did this come from research? And he said, no, it was completely from his own uh, warped mind, I guess. The other thing I just want to point out, and this has nothing to do with screenwriting, but I'm seeing something that I want to point out to the audience so that you can watch for this kind of stuff. And that is that I'm pretty sure that actors and anybody at this point in the public eye is has learned to grab attention and grab headlines from making really big mistakes. So as soon as I saw that Jennifer Lawrence fell again, of course she fell walking up to get her Oscar last year. And, you know, I, I wouldn't have said anything, but Jared Leto actually has publicly now said, I wonder if her falling on the red carpet this year was purposeful because it turned into one of the big stories of the Oscars. And even though Jennifer Lawrence didn't win an Oscar, her name got mentioned over and over and over. Same thing, John Travolta going out there and, you know, messing up. You know, John Travolta's had some PR issues in the past. Uh, he's had a rough go of it for the last couple of years. So to have a story that really focuses on something that's so incredibly uh, sympathetic, which is that he's dyslexic and this screw up, you know, called attention to his dyslexia and he was embarrassed. I found that to be another thing that, again, I have no idea if that was manufactured, but um, I do know that, you know, both Kathy Griffin and Lisa Lampanelli have talked about how their agents would teach, uh, you know, young comedians or young actors to do things in order to get themselves publicity. And I have a feeling that these lessons that have been learned about how to grab the spotlight are now being employed by A-listers. Here's a perfect example. Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump, uh, I used to wonder, why does he make such a buffoon out of himself? Why is he so desperate for the spotlight? I now know the answer to that. He makes $60 million a year off of The Apprentice. That's how much he's been making. So, you know, it makes sense in his mind to go out and to grab publicity in any way that he can. And usually it's in a very offensive, aggressive manner where he talks down about other celebrities, where he talks about uh, Obama, um, and he just addressed CPAC. Now, he's claiming that he might run for president again, which he's definitely not going to do. But the fun thing is that this year at CPAC, instead of going on about the birther controversy, which is something that he used to get himself headlines, um, the, the crazy thing is this year he didn't do anything crazy, but he did do something. He made a big mistake. He referred to the late, great Jimmy Carter in his speech, and that became the headline of the day. Donald Trump refers to Jimmy Carter, who's alive, as dead. And it was a screw-up, and it came so close in proximity to the Oscars and some of these other things that we saw that I just thought it was... Uh, it's an interesting thing to sort of keep watch for. Another uh, really interesting thing, my friend Josh Boone has been tapped to by Warner Brothers to direct The Stand. Uh, those of you who've been listening know that I've, I've highly, highly, highly recommended his film Stuck in Love. Stuck in Love is a great... Uh, romantic comedy drama about a family of writers. And it's streaming on Netflix. It's at Redbox now. This film only made about $70,000 in theaters, but uh, it got him a, his first studio film, which they're still cutting, I believe, and based off of 
Uh, I, I don't know exactly how it happened. I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out, but he has been tapped to direct the seminal Stephen King work, The Stand, uh, as a big franchise movie. So, you know, I think that's really exciting news and hopefully the movie will happen and move forward. I got some really good questions this week and I'm going to talk a little bit about those. Here's a question about working with writing partners. Um, I have a writing partner that I work on projects with. Writing alone is great, but I have to. I, ha- I like to have somebody to bounce ideas off of from time to time. The problem is when I let someone have an equal share in the process. I find our story becomes muddled and the two slightly different versions of the script are at odds with each other. My partner wants us to write separately, as in I write the first two scenes, he writes the next two, and we collaborate from there. We obviously edit them every few days to make them link up better, but I don't think this is a great way of writing. It loses cohesion or something. What would be your advice on the best ways to write with a partner? What's the process? Um, Usually writing partners, in my experience, have worked together. Uh, The the partners, uh, depending on sort of where they are in their careers. Um, You know, there is something to be said for writing partners where one of them is really, really good at selling things. And the other one is really, really good at writing, and they have sort of a symbiosis that goes on where one of them does a little bit more of the writing, and the other one does a little bit more of the selling in the room, and has a little bit more of the personality and handles more of the business uh, and social elements of uh, the writing process, of the writing business, if you will, while his partner deals with more of the writing process. Um, That's when you see sort of the high-end professional writing teams. Uh, When it comes to new writers... I can't imagine how that could work and work well to be not writing together. Um, I don't know if I, I, I remember that I, I recently tweeted to final draft and asked if there was a way to collaborate online together. I know that inside of Google Chrome, you can do that. And I would think that maybe that's something you want to explore working together on the phone, on Skype, working on the same document and altering the document together. But if this isn't, you know, the thing about working with a writing partner is it has to happen somewhat organically. I thought about this and there's three things that I can recommend when it comes to deciding to work with somebody. And number one, you have a history together. You're old friends, your friends from college, your buddies, you hang out, you watch movies together, you talk about ideas, you spitball things, and now you've come up with something and you want to work on it together. Awesome. Um, Two other things that are a little bit more cynical. Number one, they're a much better writer than you. If this person really can deliver some great writing and you're not there yet and you have a lot to learn about the process of delivering a screenplay, by all means, work with that person because you're the one who's really getting the uh, advantage. And the second thing, uh, the second idea is if they have a much better idea or concept than what you can come up with. If one of your friends nails an idea and you're thinking of working together, well, that would be the idea that I would work on with them because they've delivered a premise that is sellable and now you can help in the process of writing this great idea on spec. We've talked about writing with a partner. This particular process, I don't think, it just doesn't sound like it's working. And you have to be really careful about working with other people because I've seen so many times where the process doesn't keep going and yet meaning that one of the writers drops off of the project and the other one wants to keep doing it and there's a creative disagreement and either you have to abandon the project or you have to kind of still go 50-50. But that doesn't, you know, it's a really rare thing. I don't know anybody who's actually sort of 
moved a, a project far enough where it actually ends up selling and another writer fell off of it a year ago but was involved in those initial things but theoretically if that were to happen that second writer would pretty much still be in a position to get 50 percent of the sale so if it's not working if you're not collaborating in a way that's just really working for you stop collaborating with that person you you know it's the kind of thing where life is too short and if it's not creating magic i mean look there's writing teams who lose the magic but if it's not magical then and if if it's more work and effort than it you know, if it's if it's like a bad relationship or something like that, or if it's difficult, or if the stuff just isn't turning out that good, fuck it, move on. All right, um, I have some really good questions here about uh, Gary is starting as an intern at a blossoming reality television production company, and he has some questions about interning. Uh, here's the biggest things that I can suggest about interning because I was an intern. Uh, at some really cool companies. I, I went to college in LA, so I got to work at actual, you know, big production companies and stuff as a student. And that was really cool. But here's, here's what you want to do. Um, number one, be cool. The most important thing is that people like you and that you're helpful and that you're there. Show up on time. Show up 15 minutes early. Don't be late. Dress a little bit better than everybody else there. Often at production companies, you see people in jeans and t-shirts. But the thing is, often when you're a young intern, I'm speaking totally from my perspective now, or my experience, I would see people in jeans and t-shirts and think, oh, I should, I can wear jeans and t-shirts too, and sneakers. But like, I didn't know what a nice t-shirt was, like what a, what a $50 t-shirt was, the difference between that and maybe what I was wearing, or what a nice pair of jeans look like. It took me a really long time to figure out some of these codes that are involved with the office casual dress. And if you don't know how to dress and you don't know what nice jeans are and you don't know what a nice t-shirt is or that you're not supposed to wear the same white sneakers that you would wear at the gym during a daytime kind of office thing, if, if, if this stuff is foreign to you, slacks and a button-down shirt. Can't go wrong. You can get a pair of slacks at Target for 20, 25 bucks that are nice, that are flat front. You know, you can actually look really sharp today for not a lot of money. That's something to keep in mind. And if it sounds like really cosmetic, like, oh, be, be cool. Let make people like you. Dress well. Uh, the, the reason for that is because you're not really going to be judged on advanced work. You're not doing advanced work. You're going to be answering the phone. You're going to be picking up lunch. You're going to be doing the things that people don't have time to do. With my interns, when I, when I had them, I was, you know, often using them for help on research projects and things like that. You know, read. That's another thing. Read as much as you can. Because here Gary talks about they're talking one sheet. They're talking about summaries. They're talking about research. And, you know, the best thing you can do is say, hey, can I look at some one sheets? Gary also has some questions about, you know, what uh, he should concentrate on in terms of being productive. Just do whatever they want you to do. Keep a smile on your face. If they're having a rough day, um, step back. You know, if somebody's getting a little bit annoyed or gets annoyed with you, don't take it personally. Don't push it. Just recognize when somebody's sort of getting irritated when the heat level's going up. Um, that's something it took me a really long time to learn when you're dealing with any sort of boss, whether it be you're an intern or you're an assistant or you're an executive, and somebody's getting a little bit irritated, it probably has nothing to do with you. 
Um, even if you've fucked up on something and they yell at you, it probably has the reason that they're yelling has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the fact that something else is going on in their life. Something else is going on in their career. You might not know what it is and you just have to step away and try not to engage. Don't keep that argument going. Just, just retreat, um, until they have an opportunity to calm down and potentially apologize. And if they don't apologize, don't worry about it. Let's see, what skills should I master? This is the thing. If you're working at a reality TV company, you might be able to learn a skill. You might be able to learn how to use a piece of equipment. You might be able to learn how to edit. You might be able to put together a trailer based on the based on the footage that's there. And you know, use the opportunity to learn. Use the opportunity to sit there. If somebody's coming in and editing a trailer or whatever, you might say, "Hey, could I could I sit in with them and just sit back and listen and watch?" And maybe that person will sit there and teach you how it's done. The technical elements of of learning how to do some of these things can be incredibly valuable. Some quick announcements. You can leave a review of the starter screenplay uh, on Amazon. If you've read my book, please go to Amazon, leave a review. It's not a book report. It can be two sentences long. Go leave a review. Really helps me out. It sells a bunch of copies every time somebody just leaves a review. And also, I'm going to be talking to some writing groups in the next couple of months. If you have a writing group, email me if that's something you're interested in. And you can go to officialscreenwriting.com to hire me to read your screenplays. Uh, speaking of which, I there's a great article out. It's at bizjournals.com, uh, and the article is about me. The title is How to Get Started on a Screenplay That Sells, and the article is written by Gina Hall, who was on the cinema floor with me at USC. We go all the way back to freshman year of college, and she reached out to me and said, well, hey, I'm writing these articles on people who do things that are a little bit unorthodox inside of the business, and why don't we sit down and talk about it? Um, so I'm going to use the opportunity here to actually correct the record. Um, you know, the, the funny thing is, when I got to the, we met at the coffee bean in Westwood, and, you know, she pulls out her pet, and I was like, oh boy, because I talk really fast, um, I have a lot of thoughts, and, you know, I, I just knew that, like, you know, there's something is going to get lost in the translation, which it does, because the first thing that I'm quoted in in the article, um, actually, no, it's not the first thing, but one of the quotes, I, I have to deconstruct this just because I, it doesn't quite make sense to me as I read it. And there's a couple of different ideas here. So this is the podcast, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it. The quote is, you could be a director at 17 if you surround yourself with the right people on the right projects, says Levenberg. But if a script like 12 Years a Slave wasn't perfect, it wouldn't have moved forward. Now, these quotes came from actually completely different different trains of thought uh, at different points in the conversation that went on for about an hour and 25 minutes. Um, the thing about being a director at 17, I've talked about this. But I, I wrote an article that I'm really proud of because it, it turned out to be right. And I talked about the future of independent cinema. And I said that independent cinema is going to be fundamentally altered, not by the access and the cheapness of, uh, or access to equipment that you can have now, or anybody can for five grand have a movie quality camera camera and for 400 bucks you can have a movie quality microphone. The thing that I was talking about here in the future of independent cinema was that cinema will fundamentally change once professional Hollywood screenplays are available to the masses, are available to the person who can raise a hundred grand or five hundred grand uh, or 25 grand on their own and go out and make a movie. There's 17 year olds who direct some pretty cool short films and who can do some really amazing stuff. And if they had the right cinematographer and the right local actors, I have no question that a 17 year old could, 
deliver a feature film because it's just a lot more directing. You know, a feature, the difference between a, a short and a feature is just more shooting days. That's it. So with the right script, I really believe that there is a 17-year-old who could direct something that if the script was right, you could tolerate at the very least. And for independent films, that's sort of all you have to do because most of them are pretty fucking awful. Um, and then the thing about 12 Years a Slave was I was talking about um, the exact quote here was, if a script like 12 Years a Slave wasn't perfect, it wouldn't have moved forward. Here I was talking about commercialism. I was talking about the fa fact that, you know, a project uh, that I'll talk about a little bit in a minute, like nonstop, you know, it starts with the script with a really great concept. And then they move it along. Then another writer is brought in and they find the money. To, to bring another writer, and then they find them, and if that writer doesn't work out, they find them more money to bring in another writer, um, and they move the project forward because with the right concept, with adequate screenwriting, I assure you, the first script for Nonstop was probably pretty darn good for what it was. It probably was not a terrible screenplay because this comes into the levels that I sometimes talk about. Where and and here, there's actually a, a quote in the article. Uh, about this where, you know, G and this is Gina's quote, not mine. You may not realize it, but the script for the worst movie you'll see this year probably has a writer behind it who has extensively studied the conventions of genre, structure, and character arcs. The worst films and the worst, the worst films that you see, believe me, those scripts are better than the best co uh, contest winning scripts and the best scripts by unrepresented screenwriters. That's just how it is. The, the, there's a level of professionalism that, you know, new writers have to work on. They have to work on getting their education there. And, you know, that's something, uh, that when it comes to the 12 years of slave, uh, argument that I make, uh, is that if that script hadn't been phenomenal, hadn't been an A plus script by a writer who, by the way, John Ridley's had movies made for the last 15 years, more than that, even might even be 20 years, 20 years of movies being made. Uh, this guy has been around the block. This, this is not some newbie with, you know, a, a really difficult subject matter. This is, you know, a Titan in the, in his industry of writing. So this section is a little bit removed from the rest of the conversation, but I thought there was some interesting stuff about scene work in here, so I'm going to let you listen to it. I decided not to cut all of it out. Here you go. There's a six-page scene here. Let's look at it. Let's talk about the essential information. Here, these are the. I'm going to circle like the three things that we have to find out in this scene. Um, how do we make this scene more interesting? You have characters talking at each other. Uh, they're hiring him for the mission, our hero. He's getting hired onto the mission, but we have six pages of characters talking at each other. What if our character tries to leave and guards bring him back to the table and put a knife to his throat? That's a much more interesting way of adding tension to the scene. Because now he's got to listen to these guys who are trying to get him to do the mission. Which, incidentally, in this particular screenplay, the character or our hero was not drag-kicking and screaming into the mission. He wanted to go on the mission. So I said, look, that's not how it works. Uh, there's something called refusal of the call. I think it goes back to Joseph Campbell. Uh, you know, this is something where you, you might as well just change it up and make it work, uh, and, and use the tools that screenwriting has for you. And one of those things is that the hero can't want to do the mission. They have to be drag kicking and screaming. They have to be the worst person for the mission. There's gotta be a really good reason why they can't go. Um, because here's the thing, this, there's actually a really good reason for this. 
if the hero, if the mission is optional, if it's something that the hero is cool with, like, yeah, this seems pretty cool. I'd like to go on this adventure, which is, you know, most movies are adventures. So most of the time the character would want to go, right? But here's where you run into problems. If the character chooses to go, then once things become very life and death oriented, there's no reason for the character to stay on the mission. There, it doesn't make sense. And the audience would disconnect with it. It's like, why is this character still doing this? Why are they put now that the, we keep raising the stakes now that life and death are on the line, why would he keep or she keep moving forward like this? And the reason that they do and that a hero does in a movie is because they have to, they don't have a choice, their world and their, or their family and it's a media family. It can't be your second cousin's, you know, nephew or whatever. Incidentally, it's kind of funny that I started off the podcast talking about the drift and I said, you know, it's about a character, his friends or his mentor's niece. Um, I would have to go back and look at that book and see, okay, you know, how do they keep tying our hero in? How does he keep getting in deeper in a way that he can't extricate himself? Because that's the necessity of it. If it's not his immediate family, if he doesn't have to, if it's not his daughter's life on the line, why does he have to keep going? That's a question that I would look at, you know, in the case that I read the book again. And again, it's a book. It doesn't have the same demands that a screenplay does. But you're talking about a guy who, you know, had sold multiple books uh, to studios before his screenwriting days, and he knew what he was doing. Uh, and used a lot of the tools that screenwriting has to offer, which is something I, d- I did talk about this with Gina uh, in this article. Art- it didn't make it into the article, but I talked about how a lot of writers, authors, are using the tools of screenwriting in order to improve. That's all for this week. Follow me on Twitter at Starter Script. If you're thinking about some new ideas, hire me for a concept consultation. 99 bucks. We spend an hour on the phone. We really work out a lot of good stuff. You can buy my book, The Starter Screenplay, on Amazon. And be sure to check out Nonstop in Theaters. I'm Adam Levenberg. Thanks for listening.